Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed podcast with Wesley Biblical Seminary. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, president of WBS, and today we have a special guest with us as usual. We have Reverend Keith Boyette. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Keith, and then uh, we're going to talk about the future of Methodism and the global Methodist church. So, um, Boyette, or Keith, is a member of the Virginia Annual Conference and founded the Wilderness Community United Methodist Church about two decades ago. And for eight years, uh, Keith served on the Judicial Council, known as the Supreme Court of the United Methodist Church, and was elected by his peers to serve as Secretary of the Council. Prior to responding to God's call to ordain ministry in the United Methodist Church, uh, Keith was a practicing attorney in Virginia and Kentucky and currently serves as the president of the Wesley Covenant Association and the chairman of the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church. And I think, uh, Keith, the most interesting thing there is you went from being an attorney to a pastor. And so I'd love to hear, <laughs> to hear that story uh, someday. And, I, you know, one of my coworkers here at Wesley Biblical, he is also an attorney. Uh, he's our business office uh, guy, our vice president for business affairs. And for Christmas, I got him a mug that says, I'm billing you for this conversation. And so I hope as we talk today <laughs> and you lend your, your time uh, with us uh, that we won't get a huge bill. So in any case, thrilled to have you and welcome. Well, it's great to be with you. Often I introduce myself as a recovering attorney, although... <laughs> Although uh, I'm still licensed to practice law in both Virginia and Kentucky, but Lord called me into the pastorate and into uh, theological and uh, scriptural leadership. So I'm happy to serve in that capacity. There Joy to go. be with you. Great. And, you know, like a brand plucked from the burning, you know. <laughs> there you go. So we're, we're thrilled to have you. And let me say, too, just on a personal note, um, how grateful I am for your leadership and this this really unusual once in, you know, several century lifetime sort of things that happens in these big organizations that you've been at the center and, and with the Holy Spirit's help uh, providing leadership to this time of transition. So thank you for that. And know that we're praying for you. Um, it thank must you. be a tremendous emotional draw and, uh, and just require a lot of yourself. So thank you for your service. Well, I depend on those prayers. So thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. So um, so we're going to talk about the future of Methodism. And uh, this is a, a big topic of conversation for uh, listenership, for our students and board members and supporters of Wesley Biblical Seminary, you know, being a conservative Orthodox Wesleyan Arminian training institution uh, for many, many years. So uh, I, although for a lot of folks, they may not know the narrative of uh, what's happening in Methodism and sort of the turning points and how we arrived at where we are today and, and where we are today. Um, I think it was about two weeks ago now that the announcement was made of the Global Methodist Church. Um, and But a lot of people might have an idea of what that is. Maybe they don't have an idea of what that is. So I guess my first question is really just a comment for our non-Methodist readership or listenership. Tell us about this narrative and how we got to where we are and, and where we go from here. Well, of course, the worldwide Methodist body is huge. The United Methodist Church is one subset of that worldwide Methodist family. United right. Methodism is the largest denomination in Methodism here in the United States. And as uh, perhaps most of your listeners know, uh, the United Methodist Church came into existence in 1968 with the merger of the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren Church. And almost immediately, the church began to experience conflict Mm. around its uh, its sexual ethics. Mm. Um, the, uh, in 1972, the church uh, had a, a robust debate about 
homosexuality, um, the definition of marriage, the, um, it, the church's ordination standards, and the United Methodist Church uh, decided, uh, consistent with its historic teachings and the historic teachings of Christianity, that marriage would be defined as being between one man and one woman, uh, and that um, uh, the practice of homosexuality was not consistent with uh, God's call upon us that it's sinful, and that uh, our pastors uh, should be chaste in, in singleness and um, faithful in heterosexual marriage. And uh, virtually every general conference since 1972, the general conference occurs once every four years, uh, the regular general conference, uh, every general conference since 1972 there have been those within United Methodism that have sought to change those determinations, those teachings, those positions, uh, and, and they've been defeated every time. Um, the, the short way I, I summarize this, uh, basically up until about 2004, um, uh, the efforts were made uh, to try to change it legislatively through the General Conference. They were unsuccessful. So beginning in about 2004, there were a series of challenges before the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church to try to overturn it judicially. That happened to be during the eight year period that I served as a member of the Judicial Council. So I was involved in deciding those cases and the council consistently affirmed the position of the General Conference. Then beginning in about 2008 and escalating through 2012, there were a series of what I would call ecclesiastical disobedience, similar to civil disobedience, but in the church where people knowingly and intentionally violated the discipline in an effort, in their view, to underscore the unjustness of what was occurring. And uh, initially, the church uh, worked to uphold its position, its teachings. Uh, there were trials and uh, persons were, uh, uh, their credentials were removed from them. They were removed from the ministry. But uh, beginning in about 2012, there were a series of events where uh, the, the leadership of the church here in the United States became complicit with uh, those who were violating the discipline. In other words, they actively encouraged that violation. They subverted the processes of the church to hold pastors um, accountable to the teachings of the church. Um, the, uh, the even bishops uh, engaged in those uh, practices and were not held accountable under the provisions of the discipline. And then, wow. of course, in 2016, when we met in Portland, Oregon, um, the, the the chasm in the church, the 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 fact that we were so radically at, in opposition to each other was so evident that um, there was actually a group that met during that uh, general conference and asked the bishops to lead the church in a amicable separation. And the bishops responded to that by saying, well, we're going to impanel a commission on the way forward to try to determine once and for all how we're gonna resolve this issue so that we can be remain united as the church. 
in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 General Conference, the Western jurisdiction of the church, which is the portion of the church, uh, the Rocky Mountains and to the Pacific, uh, elected a, an individual, Karen Olivito, who was a, a, a lesbian uh, married to a deacon in the church, a woman uh, in the church, uh, elected her a bishop, uh, consecrated her. The, gen the Judicial Council thereafter held that her consecration was unlawful under church discipline, uh, but uh, she continues today to serve as a bishop of the church. Uh, of course, I'm almost done here. The 2019 General Conference. Uh, You're great, man. This is this is super helpful. Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the 2019 Special General Conference considered the report of the Commission on the Way Forward, and again uh, adopted the historic position of the church by a vote of 53% to 47%. Adopted what we refer to as the traditional plan that not only continued to uphold the church's teachings, but strengthened the accountability uh, provisions of the discipline. It was a very vitriolic general conference. I say the only thing that would have made it more ironic would have been if the concluding hymn had been, they will know we are Christians by our love. Wow. Because there wow. was no love yep, there in sure. St. Louis. And, um, and uh, so coming out of that general conference, uh, the the woundedness, the brokenness of the church was on display for the entire world. Our irreconcilable differences were there, and we were faced with a choice of how do we go forward as a denomination when we are so badly broken and in chaos. Um, if I could just add a, a, a couple more things, it, sure, uh, the, yeah, the, the the you know the church is unique in uh, what would be mainline Protestant denominations here in the United States and that it continues to um, teach and hold to a traditional sexual ethic. Um, but what makes the church unique is that it among American Protestant denominations, mainline denominations, it's the only one who has an international membership and at the time in 2016, about 48% of the population of the church was outside the United States. Today, more than half of the members of the United Methodist Church are outside of the United States. So the United States is deeply uh, divided and um, the structure is overwhelmingly in favor of a liberalized sexual ethic. Uh, and is in outright rebellion against the mm. decisions of the General Conference, uh, whereas the the church outside the United States is is very uh, orthodox, biblical, traditional in its understanding here. Wow. Okay. That's the fastest I've ever listened. And, and I'll tell you, there's you know. It was excellent, and I think it's super helpful to give us a point of reference because understanding uh, the move forward is based on that context, right? And so I, I think one question I do have, uh, just as a follow-up or even just talking point, is that 
you know, for a long time, this, this issue of human sexuality and, and Christianity in the midst of, in the United States, what we're experiencing and what I call a culture war, um, a, a, a difference of ideas that's manifesting in the public sphere in terms of politics and even uh, just the, the public you know, arena that we live in. Um, for Christianity, to me, it's almost the human sexuality piece is almost secondary to the how do we interpret scripture piece. Sure. And, and so to me, it's almost like a litmus test in terms of do we take the scriptures at face value as the inerrant word of God or not? And so to me, there's this deeper issue at hand with what is the role of scripture and how do we interpret it? And um, every um, kind of exposition or explication that I've heard in terms of defending uh, uh uh, let's say homosexuality or let's say non-traditional heterosexual practice uh, seems to do violence to the text to me uh, as an interpreter of the Bible, uh, having, you know, my doctoral studies are in Old Testament interpretation of the Psalms. And so to me, yes, human sexuality is a huge issue, but it really has to do with what are the rules of engagement in terms of how we approach the text itself? And so I just like to hear your thoughts on that in terms of the Bible, its authority, and that conversation and that issue and the role that it plays within the, the broader context. Well, sure. In fact, um, uh, we frequently say that human sexuality is just the presenting issue. Right. And what I say right. is uh, we are, we're, every generation has to answer in its day the question of who is Jesus? Yes. What is its uh, source uh, yes. or authority? And how will it interpret and apply that source? Okay. Yes. And, um, and so uh, in our day, those questions are being determined around the issue of human sexuality. In other generations, it was other issues. Right. But um, what is it at, at issue here for me is every fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, from the doctrine of creation, yes, how we understand what God was doing in creation and what God's vision is for human flourishing, for, for humanity to experience the abundant design of God for uh, humanity's well-being. Right. Uh, so that doctrine, what is sin? The whole doctrine of sin is in play here. Uh, what is repentance? Uh, what is justification? Uh, what is salvation? Uh, yeah. How do we understand salvation? What is sanctification? Yeah. Uh, every one of those issues is in play. Um, you know, it was during the formation of the United Methodist Church that the term, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, was mm. first used uh, right. by Albert Outler as part of uh, coming up with the uh, theological statement that's found in the Book of Discipline, was found in the Book of Discipline at that time. And um, um, Outler, as you, I'm sure, are aware, later uh, expressed his deep regret that he had mm. coined that phrase and that it had been articulated in the way in which it was uh, shared. Um, Methodism, United Methodism, uh, under using that rubric of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, um, embraced theological pluralism. Yeah. That basically said, you know what? Um, conflicting understandings of theology can coexist in this same denomination and have mm. equal validity. Right. Which 
is just mind blowing to me. Yes. <laughs> um, and 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 what the Wesleyan quadrilateral did was to say, okay, uh, as as interpreted within theological pluralism, is well, the Holy Bible, the Scripture, is but one of four right. sources for reaching your theology, and it's of no greater importance than your reason, yep. you know, experience, your experience and, tradition. and your tradition. And of course, the way in which uh, experience was used was not the classical way that Wesley used the term experience. Wesley never, of course, talked about a quadrilateral. It yeah. is a creation uh, right. you know, of modern the modern academy, I guess you'd say. Mm. Uh, but but uh, uh, Wesley, we know, uh, though he was uh, he, he he built a world class Christian library. He said, I, "I'm a man of one book." One book, yeah. It was it was the Bible that was the very ground and source of authority for Wesley, consistent with the with classical Christianity down through the ages. But um, but the quadrilateral basically says those other things, tradition, my own personal experiences, which is way the modern um, folks who articulate this refer not to the experience of, you know, um, uh, the witness of the, of the scriptures and all of that are, but, but no, my personal experience, you right. know, what I feel, right. uh, you know, uh, and, and so that those, those, those can countermand the pronouncements of scripture. So in this debate, I, I, there may be a, a scholar somewhere who has attempted to justify homosexual practice, uh, a, a, a redefined marriage as being between two individuals, not between one man and one woman, who, who tries to do that on the basis of scripture. Yeah. But I'm not aware of that person. Yeah. Every, every person that I've read academician who seeks to justify uh, that position uh, acknowledges from the get-go that scripture is universally negative on their argument. Yeah. Then they move to arguing reason, tradition, experience. They say that the ancient world did not know the kind of homosexual relationships that we know today. They do. They go through all of those sorts of things. So you're right. The very the very core of this argument within the United Methodist Church, and and for that matter, uh, in Western Christianity, because as I referenced, every other mainline denomination has already divided over this issue. That's right. So it's been fought out in each of the. It's not uniquely Methodist. It's not but, at all. But the very core of it here is, uh, what is the Bible? Is it the the inspired word of God, which is the, the rule and uh, foundation of our faith, or, or is, it, uh, it, it, is it just a suggestion that when right. we, can, we can decide, like Thomas Jefferson in the notes. Yeah, Jefferson Bible. Virginia, yeah, yeah, just says, you know, I'm going to rip out the sections that I don't personally agree with. Or that can't be make, explained by naturalism. Right, yeah. and I'll make my own Bible, you know, and, and so... Um, you know, there's a leading, uh, uh, what would now be called a centrist or moderate uh, uh, United Methodist, um, Adam Hamilton, who has proposed a, a what he calls a three-bucket um, understanding of scripture. And so uh, you determine what bucket 
the, the scripture goes into it. Is it the divinely in, inspired will of a statement of God uh, applicable all time? Was it something that God just said to one culture at one time and therefore right. it's not binding for all time? Or is it something that is in the Bible that wasn't God's will at all, but the people who wrote the Bible at the time came up with? And of course, there's no rubric for how you decide what goes in which bucket. Um, it's very convenient that each of us get to decide that, which means that it is no authority at all at that point. That, that's right. And, you know, I think a couple comments, I think two, my first one is in response to that right away in terms of the scripture is that it either is what it says about itself or it isn't. And that right. that's, I mean, it says very clearly in second Timothy three sixteen what it is. And if it, if you're saying it's not that, then immediately we have a problem. I was sitting in a Sunday school class once and uh, the, the teacher didn't know that I was a, you know, an ex, let's say an expert student of scripture, you know, that I'd done doctoral work in old Testament studies and evangelical confessional scholar and all this stuff. And he was asking his, his um, Sunday school class, uh, was it important that Paul actually wrote the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians? And uh, because a lot of scholars think that Paul didn't for X, Y, and Z reason. And he led them to conclude that, no, it wasn't important. What was important is how it speaks to us today. And I, I kind of raised my hand and said, you know, I think it is important whether or not Paul wrote it. And he said, well, why? I said, because the first verse says that Paul wrote it. You know, and if if the Bible doesn't, what it says about itself isn't true, then we have a big problem on our hands. Mm -hmm. And then, so, yeah, so that's my first issue. The second one is, it's not, um, I think it, it's, it, it would be wrong to think that it's not strictly human sexuality and the Christian view on it that's at stake here. What's at stake is orthodoxy, which is right worship. I, I don't mean right belief as much as I mean right worship. And that orthodoxy is essential for salvation. And so, you know, I know that there can be critiques raised against the church for division and not loving one another and, you know, Christ's vision for the church is unity and all those things. But what we're talking about here is orthodoxy. Um, you know, who is Jesus and who isn't he is that's deal breaker stuff. Sure. And, well, and, and so, yeah, I, I believe that there is a difference between a denomination and the one holy apostolic church. Yeah, church. sure. Uh, Catholic Church, Universal Church. The um, and so um, those who argue unity for a denomination, I find often are are focused on institutional unity. Right. Sure. And I believe the unity that Jesus speaks of, and that is that yes. is throughout um, the Bible, is a, a unity of of faith of belief. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, and so so. Um, I, I'm very committed to to the unity of the church universal. That's right. uh, and, and, that, and that's what's at stake too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I would imagine that if we talked long enough, we could find something that we disagreed about. <laughs> but I would I would submit that we have a, an agreement upon the very foundation and core of our faith those essential beliefs uh, that that are to bind us together, and yeah. and yet I would say that I do not believe in the United Methodist Church currently. There is that foundational agreement on the very essentials of our faith. That's right. That's right. Well, that's 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 great. Let me let me um, go a little bit further here. So, you talk about how it was voted down, um, you know, and that the 
if I can say it kind of crudely, that the conservatives won, right? So one question that I have been asked was, um, and I want to ask you this question, is if conservatism won, why are they the ones leaving? You know, sure. so speak to that for us, would you? Sure. And, yeah, uh, thanks. And you're, you're probably only the 200,000 yeah. person that has asked that question. It's completely reasonable. Uh, but um, understand the context in which this decision was made. You have a church which, in which the leadership, the bishops of the church in the United States, uh, and the um, leadership underneath them is uh, in almost complete rebellion against the, the governing documents of the church, the polity of the church. Right. And there is, there is no way to um, remove them as bishops. Um, and those who are practicing in defiance of the teachings of the church are not prepared to leave. They're, they're happy to stay and continue violating yeah. the teachings of the church, which means that, um, yes, we could go through innumerable uh, disciplinary proceedings to try to remove a person at a time but it is so pervasive in the fiber of the church in the United States that, um, that we'd never get there, I believe. And the cost and time expended is, is incalculable. Yeah. And meanwhile, the witness of the church yeah, is continues at stake. to be sullied. And, yeah. and so, so we were, we're faced with a choice as those who believe in the Orthodox faith. Do we... Do we continue to contend with a, a body, an institution that will say what is right on paper, but then live in complete defiance and denial of it? Uh, or, or do we, and, 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 and know that uh, we can fight that day until, fight that until Jesus returns. And no, have I prayed for Jesus to return and all of this, but, um, uh, or, or do we say, you know, it, this has gone too far. It's it's irredeemable. Right. Uh, right. It is it is time uh, to to launch forth in a new movement, which will uh, be very clear about its doctrinal understandings. Um, will be very clear in in its uh, beliefs. Will be very clear in its uh, accountable accountability structures. And so in, in developing what is now uh, called the Global Methodist Church, we've come at this at a number of different levels. So we've, we've tried to structurally address the things that preclude effective accountability in the United Methodist Church. And I'll just give you a couple of real quick examples. Yep. Um, we say that um, whereas in United Methodism, uh, bishops are elected for life. Uh, we now say that in the global Methodist church, they will be elect, they will be term limited. Okay. There's yeah. a huge difference there. Huge. And that was a question I had is how do you prevent this from happening again? Yeah. You know? The second thing we do is in the United Methodist church, if you and I, um, and, um, a, a few others are bishops and I violate the, the discipline, 
you and those other couple people are the ones who are to hold me accountable. But if you're violating it too, or you're doing something different, it becomes in our best interest to watch over each other, to, per to permit each other to continue to sure, do you, these things that we're yeah, doing. Yeah, you become complicit. Right, exactly. Well, in, in the global Methodist church, we have said that bishops are accountable not to one another. I mean, they are, yeah. but they're ultimately accountable to the church through a general committee on the episcopacy that is made up of clergy and lay people. Oh, wow. Okay. And so if I violate the, the, the terms of my consecration, um, if I violate the discipline of the global Methodist church, I go before that body. Right. And they, uh, they're not beholden to me. So it's more democratic. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. More. We've also addressed the way bishops are elected. Uh, right now in the United Methodist Church, they're elected by each regional body, the jurisdiction. Sure, yeah. Um, in, in the global Methodist church, we, we propose a, a different way of electing bishops that may, again, involves the entire church, not just one region. Right. So that I, I, I believe Christianity is the same here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as Amen. in Jackson, Mississippi, yes. Yes, as that's in, right. in Lumbumbashi, the Democratic Republic one, of Congo. One baptism, one spirit, right. one Christ. Yep. And so you don't look around and say, well, hold it. Uh, we have a different practice of Christianity over here. So if bishops are elected by the whole church and yeah. they're accountable to the whole church, we believe we'll avoid some of this. The, the the infiltration of culture yeah. as accommodate us in our particular geographic area. So so I, I do want to so one of my questions was how will the global Methodist church be different than in UMC? And you're speaking to that now. So um I, I do want to come back and ask a question about seminaries. But let before I do that, let me ask this question as you're talking about some of the differences. Um it'll still be a top-down structure, correct? And what, you know, something I've heard complained about for decades is the whole, you know, the district is the one who moves pastors, decides who's going to be where. And I know it's more complex than that, um, but most Protestant, you know, governance structures are bottom up. The church assembly congregation has a great deal of say and who their pastor is going to be. And so will that change or will it still be, you know, the episcopacy, the bishops and the district superintendents who are going to decide who gets moved where in terms of local pastors, or is that going to change? Well, you just asked a very complicated question. Yes, I know, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, I have to, I, I have to uh, describe a little bit about where we are in this process to answer your question. So, sure, sure. Um, the WCA, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, was formed in part to prepare if a new uh, denomination was needed. Yep. And the Wesleyan Covenant Association as part of that um, has, has crafted what is known as a draft book of doctrines and discipline. And that has one plan for the deployment of clergy in it. Now, when, um, when the mediation occurred following the 2019 General Conference, and uh, which was a gathering of the, of leaders from each of the main theological streams in United Methodism. And we met with a world-class mediator, Kenneth Feinberg, and eight of the leading uh, bishops in the church to develop what is known as the protocol 
for reconciliation and grace through separation, which creates the mechanism by which the church will amicably separate. When mm. that was announced, there were uh, theologically conservative uh, bishops and other leaders in the church who were not part of the WCA. And they said, well, we have had no role in what you all have been doing. Right. And yep. so we might just go and start our own denomination rather than working with the WCA. Our goal has not been to shatter and fragment sure, yeah. the theologically conservative part of the church. So yeah. we said to them, we, we, we called a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. We invited all of them to come and the Holy Spirit showed up. Oh, that's and wonderful. helped us um, come to a common ground on how we would move forward. Uh, a group called the Transitional Leadership Council was created, which that I'm you said, yep. person of. Yep. And, and that body was charged with preparing what, what is now the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline yep. to get us from the legal formation and op beginning of operations of the church to its convening conference. Yes. Okay. So here I, I say it's a chicken and egg problem. Sure. Which comes first? Yep. You, you come to me and you say, tell me how you're going to deploy pastors. Yep. Yep. And I say, uh, well, here's how we're going to deploy pastors. And you say, but hold it. I want say, I want to say so. Right. Right. How that's going to occur. Yep. And of course you're, you're entitled to that, but you also want to know how it's going to happen. So, Part of the getting there was to say, there's some things we're, we're universally in agreement on. No one is arguing for a lifetime episcopacy anymore. Right. In fact, we have some people arguing, do we really need an episcopacy, episcopacy at all? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. but, but everybody, the, the ground floor is we're all in agreement. It needs to be a term limited episcopacy. But one of the issues that there is no agreement on is... Employment how of. specifically appointment yeah. should be handled. So here's how we handled it. We said during this transitional period, which we're estimating will be about 18 months. Okay, that was, yep, great. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the way, and, and we're anticipating very few changes of pastors during that 18 month period. If you're serving a local church, uh, and you come to the new denomination and your church comes to the new denomination, in all likelihood, you're going to want to be together. Right. And, right. and we're not going to want to change that. You know, right. it's working for you guys. That's right. The only places where we think there will be a deployment change is if a church comes that has a progressive pastor who doesn't want to be part of the new denomination or um, or a pastor says, this is the time I need to retire. Right. Okay. Right. And so, but so in, in those instances, um, the, the, the person who will be the bishop over that church will make the ultimate appointment during this transitional period. But we have written in very express, explicit uh, ways in which the bishop is to be in consultation with the local church. So it's right. not as it is right now, largely in the United Methodist Church, there's very little consultation occurs. Um, uh, there's supposed to be dialogue between the people and the bishop, and they're to come to an agreement with, okay, this is who's gonna be appointed there. But ultimately the bishop has the appointment authority. 
Now, if you don't mind me just taking another minute. Absolutely. The, uh, the, the proposal that the WCA put forward on deployment, uh, I call it a modified call, I mean, modified scent system, okay? Uh, so uh, basically there are two avenues that a church could follow in deployment. The first one is what I call the sourced avenue. It's basically what happens in the church now. I, I'm a church, I need a pastor. I say to you, the annual conference, send me a pastor. You, the annual conference says, well, let me understand who your church is. Okay, here's this person over here that we think fills your need. We're gonna appoint that pastor to, to your church. You meet him, her, is that okay? Yes, we're good. That's the source model. It's what's basically done now. But the other model is the resourced model. It's where I, as a church, say we need a pastor. We'd like to go out and look at what the possibilities are. Yeah. Not be limited by those who are in our region. Yep, do a we search. Go anywhere. Yeah. Um, we will go to our annual conference and say, can you give us the list of some people that you think are appropriate? But we're not limited to that list. Our, our committee uh, comes up with five people that we want to interview. Um, that list has to be approved by the bishop. Right. That list of five. Um, we go through the interview process, and at the end of the, end of the interview process, we say, we want Matt. And, um, and um, the bishop then makes that appointment. Now, the bishop is likely to make that appointment because the bishop has approved the five people on the list that we're yeah. interviewing, and Matt is there. Yeah. But we have been meaningfully involved in that process, right, right. and we have ownership of it. We have, right. we have interviewed five people. And, and, and the WCCA system went on to say that we recognize that the church has historically not uh, engaged uh, women and persons of color in ways that give them equal opportunity. So it required that of those five people, at least one uh, be a woman and at least one be a person of ethnicity different than the predominant ethnicity in the church. Mm -hmm. Now I've gotten way into the weeds here, but-, but No, that's- First, first of what I would say, Matt, is uh, while, yes, uh, we have an Episcopal form of, of governance in the church, we have very much tried to invert that top-down uh, mentality to, sit, to put much more um, de decision-making in the local church so that it becomes more of a bottom-up uh, system so that the general church exists to serve the local church, yeah, not the local church existing to fund the yep. general church. Sure, sure, that's that's super helpful. And I've heard stories of you know United Methodist pastors going, "Well, I could be moved. I don't know," and and you know even peers and folks say, "Hey, where are you from?" Well, I'm kind of from every everywhere. Well, you were if you say that you're either uh, a military brat or you're a United Methodist pastor's kid, you know. That's right. That's uh, right. So, yeah. so that we we don't want to I mean, you know, I've been asked, "Are you going to have a a policy of moving pastors every 4 years no matter what?" Absolutely not. We 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 are interested in cultivating long-term pastorates. Yeah, because we believe they build the most effective churches. Um, uh, just to give you one more example, Matt, really yeah. quick, and I'll make yeah, this sure. brief. Um, for example, in the United Methodist Church, 
the what the local church pays in terms of what the United Methodist Church calls apportionments. Yep, sure. It's begun at the at the general church level with the general church level deciding this is going to be the budget. Yep. And now we're going to allocate it down. And when it gets to your church, this is the amount you have to pay determined from above. Yeah. We've turned that completely upside down to say you will determine uh, what your operating income was for the past year. Um, your local treasurer, your governing body will determine what that is. Here is the percentage. It can't exceed this percentage, percentage right. applied to that. But the, the, the general church will live off of what you determine and what all the churches determine come up. You can't okay? make money up here out of nowhere. That's right. That's you know? right. And so, you know, we know that the general the, the general church only has a reason to exist as it makes possible the ministry of the local church. Yeah. It it it, it local church should not exist to prop up a system. Right. And that's what I believe has happened in the United Methodist Church. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And and it just sounds to me in a word to be more democratic. Um where, where you know, congregate, local congregations are able to have more say and more power in the decision process. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, what you have to wonder about is, you know, popular theology and, you know, Jesus says that as time goes, false teachers will come along and lead people astray. And, but that's where you have, you know, your, your policies and your disciplines in place to, to provide the, the guidelines and the boundaries for who makes us who and what's, what's orthodoxy and what is it to be global Methodist. Sure. So, so I want to, I do want to circle back around really quick here. I've, I've got just a few more questions um, in terms of liberal theology and uh, uh, theological pluralism that you talked about before and how it's so pervaded the Episcopacy of United Methodism. And so I've heard this so many times and, and that, that, at a leadership level, at the at the conference level, there's just such liberal theology and theological liberalism. Um, are seminaries complicit in that? Are, are is it what what happened? And I know that like that's a a ten million dollar question, but the way that I see it is that you know our halls of the academy are have been taken over by liberalism and post-modernity and post-Christian thought and all these sorts of things. And then, you know, in order to be eligible for um, ordination, you have to go and get educated. And there are fewer and fewer schools that would hold to what seemed to be a backwards view of scripture, that scripture holds a higher uh, standard for measuring truth than the human mind does. And and so um, what that does is it, it puts scripture subordinate to the human mind versus the other way around. And so you have liberalism, not just in our universities, but in our seminaries. And then so our seminaries are producing liberal thinkers and liberal theologians and the culture wars being lost in the, the academies, universities, and the seminaries. So is it accurate to say that seminaries are largely to blame for the theological liberalism that pervades, um, you know, the Episcopacy of United Methodism? Well, I think they're certainly complicit. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know that they're primarily responsible for that, but they are a major influencer because let's face it, generations of pastors are prepared in these seminaries. But right. I believe, so I believe seminaries have an important role. I think another thing that has happened is United Methodists have had uh, institutional seminaries, seminaries that are um, essentially owned by the denomination. In right. a sense. And right. 
there becomes a, a, a sort of a protectionism yeah. around those seminaries. Um, and even when the evidence is that they are not producing pastors that are succeeding in local churches, the denomination doubles and triples down yeah. on those seminaries. Um, I believe it parallel with that has been a um, what I'll call an increasing professionalization of the ministry. Yeah, sure. In other words, local churches have ceded ministry to the mercenaries, yeah. the clergy. And, and so um, over time, uh, the laity have, um, I, I'm going to put it this way, they've not, they've not abandoned the ministry, but they've been exiled from the ministry. Yeah. They've been told your role is to come in and fill a seat in the sanctuary and to yeah. give your gift each week for the operation of the church. But it's the professionals who do, who are the only ones really equipped to do ministry. And yeah. so we have lost the um, disciple making function mm. of the local church. Now, um, so, so the way the, the global Methodist church uh, intends to address that we will not have institutional seminaries. Yeah. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be looking for those seminaries that prepare uh, persons who will become clergy uh, to be, uh, uphold, believe, teach uh, the doctrines of the church. That's part of the reason why we've, uh, we've entitled our, our governing documents, the Book of Doctrines and Discipline. Yeah. Because we believe doctrine is where it all starts. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. You know? And so, so um, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm for academic freedom. I believe that yeah, sure. we need a, 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 uh, uh, an opportunity for the exchange of ideas and all of that. But, um, but I also believe the church has a responsibility to ensure that those who the, it is ordaining, who it's affirming their call to ministry and who yeah. it's holding out as the people who are going to prepare people, uh, disciple them, uh, usher them uh, along the pathway of faith, that those individuals are well-grounded, equipped to articulate the, the teachings of the church. I, you know, I was, I was 39 years old when God called me into the, the pastorate. Um, uh, I, had, I was a lifelong Christian before then. I taught Sunday school. I was a leader in the local church, all those sorts of things. It was not until I got to seminary, I happened to go to Asbury Theological Seminary. It wasn't yeah. until I got there that I really began to understand why, why we did certain things in the church. Sure. You know, why there were certain aspects of the worship yep. service. And when I began to discover that, I mean, the light bulb went off yes. in my head and I said, yes. wow. And I, I'm like, why was that never yeah. shared with me by any pastor yeah. in those years? Um uh, so I, I think uh, we have to, we have to, I believe the role of the seminary is to prepare people for deployment in local churches. Yeah. Uh, oh, some, some are going to be called as you obviously were to, to uh, live out your calling in the, in a seminary environment, in an, mm -hmm. in an educational institution environment. And we, we need people like that. 
Mm-hmm. But um, but but we need people who can who can proclaim the word of God. Yeah. Help people rightly understand it and and shepherd them uh, with the, with the, as as partners with the Holy Spirit as as the tools of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to help them move along the pathway towards That's sanctification. That's it. So uh, that that leads me to <laughs> that leads me to you know John Wesley's belief in the the grand depositum of Methodism within the greater spectrum of Christendom and the history of Christianity and the movement of Christian thought. Uh, you know Wesley believed that the whole reason for God raising up the Methodist church or the, the people called Methodists was this doctrine of entire sanctification. And, um, you know, I visited my share of Methodist churches. I was raised in a Methodist church from when I was about 10 till when I went off to Asbury college from my undergraduate. And, uh, I think technically I'm still a member of, you know, Sharptown United Methodist church in, in, um, in New Jersey. And so I preached there. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. Very, there you go. Uh, yeah. And I, I talk to, you know, my pastor Doug all the time and I know him personally, you know, he has a commitment to entire sanctification, but it is not common to visit a Methodist church and to hear about this doctrine of entire sanctification. It's usually known for its top-down structure and governance model and these sorts of things. So what where do you see this grand depositum where John Wesley said, I, I, this is me paraphrasing, you know, that he would rather see Methodism not exist than it exist without the doctrine of entire sanctification. Um, so what's, what's the view and the conversation like within this new movement, Global Methodist Church, and it's, 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 it's rhetoric around entire sanctification. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, I would say that if you went to the doctrinal portion of the book of yeah. the discipline, you would see there sanctification right there so it is wonderful it is at the core of what we believe um i i believe that one of the great gifts that wesley gave the church was his understanding of grace and sure. his ability to kind of break grace up into you know preventing grace and you know justifying grace yep. uh, and, and right on to sanctifying grace and ultimately glorifying uh, but um, uh, so I, I, I don't believe the church can say, OK, you've got fire insurance now. We're done. Of course. Our job. Yeah. OK, uh, that, that really is your to me. You're at the doorstep of your journey as a Christ follower when that justifi- justifying and converting. Right. Occurs. You're on the fr- you're on the front porch of the you're house the at best. Porch. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, if the church leaves you there woe to that church yeah uh, you know and and so uh, one of the things that we have been uh, given significant time to is you know one of the one of the tools that were so effective that Wesley and the early Methodist movement adopted was was a class meeting yeah um, and the bands the band meeting yeah and and the fact that that um, in our meeting together, transformation occurs, that, that God uh, confronts us with, with where we are and, and through our interaction with fellow believers seeking to get all of Christ that we can That's right. yeah. in our lives, that, that we literally cheer each other on in that journey and hold one account, another accountable and that, that the Holy Spirit does transformation in that process and that indeed we are 
we are to be sanctified and to have an expectation yeah. of entire sanctification, uh, you know, in, in this life. Um, and that we should strive for that. We should, and by striving, I don't mean to say it's our, our work. Yeah, right? sure. It, yeah. Works righteousness. I'm not it's not our work. It's right. It's the, it's the work of the Holy spirit, um, restoring us really to the, to the, uh, image of God in which we were created, uh, the, the image before the fall. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, um, what about we, we had we have six ministry task forces that have been working on what we believe will be the ministry ministerial or the ministry emphases of the global Methodist Church and one of them uh, it, we, we call accountable discipleship transformational discipleship yeah and that's a that is a major commitment to say you know what we're going to live out this doctrine of entire sanctification yeah. we're going to challenge people to move deeper and deeper into their relationship with God so that um, we do uh, experience what God has for us in that area. Well, that, that just warms my heart, Keith. And I'll tell you that, you know, there's two reasons why I'm at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I mean, the, uh, taking for granted God called, right? But two human reasons why I'm at Wesley Biblical Seminary. One is its commitment to proclaim this message that we can live in Christian victory now. Yes. Um, and the second is a high view of scripture. And that's our name, Wesley Biblical. Wesley's thinking about what Christ was offering and the Bible being the final authority that we don't bend, uh, that it doesn't bend to us. We bend to it, that we don't have to capitulate to a, a, a culture of plurality to be more palatable to a, to a culture that we inhabit that is, becoming, in my view, more and more depraved. And, um, and so that's why I'm here. And so just to hear you say that is just so, you know, remember I was a missionary in Haiti for 13 years and uh, evangelical theology in Haiti is, is more or less reformed Baptist. In fact, the word for, there is a word for Protestant in Haitian Creole, but you know, it's a very Roman Catholic country, but mostly people, when they're referring to a Protestant church, they call it the Baptist church. And it's, it's, it, well, what kind of Baptist church? Well, it's a Methodist Baptist church. <laughs> it's a Nazarene <laughs> ba method or Baptist church. It's a, so Baptist means Protestant and the gospel has been in Haiti for over 200 years. And where is the transformation? And if you're to, it's hard to find uh, a mission organization or a Bible college uh, that fully understands and articulates um, the doctrine of entire sanctification. And I think that that's one of the issues is that we've overlooked discipleship and real transformation now that it's been all about fire insurance. And it's all about been just alleviation and deliverance from the shame of sin rather than from the power of sinning. And uh, so in any case, it's something that's just so close to, um, to my calling and my heart. So thank you for that. A couple more questions as we finish up here. Has the Global Methodist Church been legally formed or started operations? And if not, when will that occur? Sure. No, it has not been legally formed or started operation. We, our website, globalmethodist.org, that, that's where people can go. You'll see there that we explicitly state that we're in formation. And the reason is that um, the Global Methodist Church will legal, be legally formed and begin operations when the General Conference of the United Methodist Church adopts the protocol for reconciliation and grace through separation. That creates a restructuring of the yep. United Methodist Church. The reason why that's important, as um, many of your listeners will know, there's something called the trust clause in Methodism, 
that says that local church uh, real estate buildings assets yep. are held in trust for the denomination. And uh, the protocol is what permits those resources to be transferred to the church as it aligns with the new denomination. Right. And while churches, of course, uh, care deeply what they believe, they're also very committed to the buildings that they have put their blood, sweat, and tears into over generations, many of them. Sure. And uh, they don't want to walk away from them. So, uh, so when will it? When yep. will it? When's really that going to happen? Yeah. Well, uh, as I said, when the protocol passes, when it's adopted. Um, and as you, your listeners probably will know, the General Conference was supposed to consider the right. protocol in May of 2020. It was postponed until August, September of 2021 because of the pandemic. And it has recently been further postponed to August, September of 2022. Really? So our, yes, yes. Because again of the, of the um, pandemic, it's a global church. Over almost half of our delegates come from outside the United States. It is impossible to get visas right now to travel. And it's impossible the, to do it virtually, huh? That's what they say. And, 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 you know, if you, I don't know what it was like when you were a missionary in Haiti, but uh, I've been to some places where, you know, the, the electricity is yep. not certain throughout the day. Sure. Uh, you might get it from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. That's when right. you get the electricity. And so um, um, at this point, uh, the determination that the Commission on General Conference has made is that there needs to be a further postponement uh, okay. to August, September 2022. Now, what we have said is if it becomes uh, clear that the persons who have proposed the protocol are abandoning it for some reason, we, we will give serious consideration to launching sooner. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's any, um, I, I don't see any possibility that the Global Methodist Church will not be launched at some point. Uh, yeah. It's a matter of, um, we, we wanna enable the most churches that are led to align with us to be able to do so with the least um, conflict and uh, as you may be aware, it's a frequently cited um, example, you know, when the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in North America yeah. went through their thing, over $80 million was spent over these kinds of fights. And I'm all for right. the full employment of lawyers, but not <laughs> God's money. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's worth waiting on is what you're saying. That's there's right. a lot there's a lot at stake. And we want to yeah, that, that makes sense. And look, we're, you're playing the long game. And and that's wise. And okay, so what do you see, Keith, some of the ministry emphases being in the global Meth, uh, global Methodist Church in the coming years? Well, I've already mentioned our emphasis yep. on, on accountable transformational discipleship. Um, we're we're uh, excited to be in. Well, first, we're excited that we're going to have theological alignment. That that there's not yes. there's not a debate over what we believe and fighting over that. Uh, we will be a very outwardly focused church. Um, the church does not exist for itself. It That's exists right. to share the gospel with a hurting world. Right, and so revitalizing local churches, um, um, seeing God breathe new life into existing church communities that have languished for years because of the infighting within the United Methodist Church. Right. Uh, we, we see a, a great um, 
church planting, church multiplication movement coming out of the global Methodist church. Uh, the church has got to address uh, its ability to connect with and involve and deploy young people and young adults. So that will be a major emphasis of the church. Interesting. Yeah. Um, global missional partnerships. The, the United Methodist model is you, you make a gift at your local church. It goes through several levels of bureaucracy. Yeah. And then somehow it's deployed over there and you never know. Yeah. We, we want a very much more organic, global, missional relationship where churches are partnered with other churches. It's a mutually beneficial relationship where both church, both areas impact the others for the uh, sake of the gospel. Um, ministry to marginalized communities. Um, mm. You know, John Wesley was, uh, his ministry flourished amongst the, the poor and the the hurting in, sure, in yeah. England, and um, we believe that should be am among the front lines of where our church is found. So, you know, ministry uh, with the marginalized. Um, we see a church that is is vibrantly invested in bringing Christ into communities outside the walls of the church, and where the church is a launch pad. Yeah, for what we do. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's fantastic. And, um, we have, we deal quite a bit with Salvation Army here at mm -hmm. Wesley and that, uh, training officers, master's degrees and, and, and those sorts of things. And, uh, that, that's, what's coming to mind when I hear you talk are mm -hmm. act, acts of mercy. You know, of course our Salvationist friends are very much committed to the doctrine of holiness as well. And so mm -hmm. these, these acts of mercy and, and, and serving the world and, and making the church visible in our communities. And that's exciting. So, um, I have two more final questions. So, um, let me ask this one first. Um, what do you think, what do you anticipate the global Methodist church's educational needs will be and what part WBS can play? That's the first question. And then to finish, what can those who are interested in becoming part of the global Methodist church be doing in this season before it's legally formed and begin operation? So take those in whatever order you wish. Sure. I'll, I'll take your first one first and you may have to remind me of the second one. No, no problem. Yeah. The, uh, well, we're clearly, we, we clearly believe in a well-trained, well-prepared clergy and, and um, ministry. And so uh, we're going to need um, educational institutions like Wesley Biblical uh, Seminary um, to prepare persons for ordination and ministry in the church. Um, um, we're, we're trying to simplify and streamline the process that people go through in being ordained. Mm -hmm. So there may well be a much more of a model of what I will call on the job training. Yeah, sure. In other yeah. words, you, you meet certain minimum requirements and then you're ordained as a deacon. Mm. If you, if, if you go back to when I was ordained, I was first ordained as a deacon and mm -hmm. then I was ordained as an elder later. Okay. Right. Right. And so um, we see people be, meeting minimal education requirements, being ordained as a deacon, deployed in ministry where they are uh, in, in congregations, um, ministering to people and completing their educational requirements while in training, while they're serving. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we believe that's a much more effective uh, way of doing it. 
we're, we'll, we'll be creating multiple pathways for people to complete those educational requirements. So uh, I don't anticipate that everyone ordained will necessarily have a master's of divinity. Mm. Uh, they may have a, a, a master's in, in some other aspect of Christian leadership, uh, mm -hmm. service, uh, biblical studies, yep. uh, whatever. Uh, we will have a robust course of study program. But Wesley, Wesley Biblical Seminary uh, certainly is an educational institution that I hope we're able to work with. And so sure, yeah. um, that's, that's all something that will be fleshed out in, the, in this coming season as we're preparing to stand up, legally organize the church. What people can do be doing in the meantime is, um, well, first and foremost, I would say we should not forget that we have been called for such a time as this. Our yes. churches have been placed in the communities they're in now because there are people that do not know Jesus yes. that we need to be reaching. And there are people who know Jesus, know of Jesus, yes. but are not being entirely sanctified. Mm -hmm. And so first and foremost, we ought to be the church on the ground. And, and yes, all these things are happening and they're at, at, a, at the denominational level and they can be uh, distracting. They are distracting. They can be discouraging, but build the best church you can right yes. now. That's a good help word. The Holy Spirit. Second, uh, prepare your people. Help them understand what's at stake here. Yeah. Help them understand where the United Methodist Church is and how it has uh, not been an asset to the Christian faith. Mm. It, it, it is it has lost members over yeah. time. Yeah. Not not grown. It hasn't even kept pace with the increase in the population. Right. Uh, you know, it it right. is numerically in decline. So. So help people understand what's at issue here. Help them be well grounded in the doctrines and teachings of the church so that they understand why this makes a difference at this season. Help them to become familiar with the Global Methodist Church, what its doctrines are, what it, what it offers. And that's why I mentioned our website, uh, globalmethodist.org. And, uh, and, and then of course, pray, help yes. your people pray. Uh, because the decision day will come, and it may come down to, you know, am I am I willing to put my whole complete trust in God? Yeah. Or am I going to keep my trust in things that seem to provide security in this world? That's it. Now, every one of us individually have to face that. Uh, I faced I faced that multiple times in my life, but certainly when I perceived God's call to ordain ministry. And uh, I have found that God is absolutely trustworthy. Yes. I would never put my trust in anything else than, than him. So, yeah. um, you know, those are, those are some of the things I would say that people ought to be doing. You know, it must've been incredibly uh, disorienting and scary for so many in Judaism to have Jesus come along and say, I'm going to build a new temple. You know, uh, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And to say, and to curse the fig tree, and to say, I've, I've, something new has come, and uh, and follow me. You know this carpenter <laughs> from right. Nazareth. Right. So, 
Um, but you know what? The Holy Spirit is the one who, who convicts hearts and who illuminates and guides and reveals and, and shows where the, where the authority is. And, uh, and so that's our prayer. That's our prayer. And, okay. and you know, I know that I've said this to you personally, but I'll say it here now that we've got your back. We love you guys. And uh, we're praying for you regularly. I mean, uh, the words Global Methodist Church and WCA are on the lips of uh, those here at WBS and our learning community um, daily. Truly, it's we're talking about it in the hallways and and sharing information that we've learned about and um, and even at a board level. So um, we're with you all. We want to support you and love you. And uh, and you're in our prayers. And we trust that God's got a perfect plan and got perfect timing for it. And so uh, and again, we're just grateful um, for your leadership and others who are involved in leadership there. Um, that there wouldn't be any confusion or strife or enmity between those who are united for orthodoxy uh, in the face of this adversary. So. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Keith. This has been super helpful. Even just for me, I learned a ton and, uh, and we're looking forward to, uh, things as they continue to progress and change. And, uh, if we could, you know, I'd love to pray for us before we, before we log off here. So any, any final words for us? Well, I would just say thank you, Matt, for the, um, job you're doing as president of Wesleyan Biblical, Wesley Biblical Seminary. Um, thank you for the witness of WBS. Um, uh, you know, I've known of the seminary uh, as it's developed. I've known many of the people that have been on the faculty. I've known uh, sure, yeah. some of your predecessors as president. And uh, I pray for you. I pray for you all at the seminary you. as well, for the faculty, for the student body. I, I know that um, many people are furthering their theological education yeah. uh, after years in ministry by taking advantage of the excellent uh, resources that you all offer. So thank you for the way you're impacting the church and what I'm humbled by the privilege to spend time with you today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I'll, I'll pray for us. And then, uh, yes, Lord, we thank you for Keith and for the global Methodist church. We thank you for the United Methodist church. Uh, you're, you're wise and you're sovereign and you're omniscient, omniscient and omnipotent Lord. And we just, we thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you will continue to do that you're already in the future, uh, preparing a place while things get delayed because of pandemics. Um, nothing comes to a surprise it com comes as a surprise to you. And so we find our peace in that Lord. Uh, we pray that you will continue to provide guidance, uh, patience and courage, uh, to Keith and his team. And, uh, we pray, uh, that this global Methodist church that stands up to honor you and to glorify you uh, would be blessed and that you would multiply it and that they would expand the borders and the boundaries of the Garden of Eden that Jesus has established in his resurrection. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother Keith. We're praying and uh, we'll keep in touch and uh, we'll keep up and keep following in terms of tracking the progress. So thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh.